And now reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 3, beginning verse 14 through 21. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that everyone who believes in him won't perish but will have eternal life. God didn't send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him isn't judged. Whoever doesn't believe in him is already judged because they don't believe in the name of God's only Son. This is the basis for judgment. The light came into the world, and people love darkness more than the light, for their actions are evil. All who do wicked things hate the light and don't come to the light for fear that their actions will be exposed to the light. Whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it can be seen that their actions were done in God. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. For God so loved the world that God gave God's only Son so that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. We've all heard those words before. These words are beautiful. They're powerful. They're evocative. It's no wonder that they've taken hold like they have. But sometimes, even beautiful phrases, no matter how lovely they are, can start to lose their luster due to overexposure. There's no need to listen, after all, anymore to something you already know or think you know. And so it's possible to never really hear it at all. It used to be quite common to see just the citation itself. John 3.16, spray-painted on highway overpasses or scribbled onto poster boards held up at televised ball games. Many of us who've grown up in the church know this verse by heart. It was one of the very first we were expected to recite and to memorize, and even if we hadn't, we easily would have absorbed it by osmosis, simply being around other people of faith in the Christian tradition. Beloved by many, it's considered by some to be the absolute baseline of Christian theology, the summation and comp completion, a compilation, if you will, of the gospel, the very plan of salvation. So I certainly do not want to sound dismissive of John 3.16. But for others, John 3.16 has become almost like a scriptural hot air balloon, so weighted down by the sandbags of familiarity, sentimentality, or worse, the fear-based fire and brimstone preaching that this scripture has often been associated with, that it's difficult sometimes to give it any kind of spiritual liftoff. Ironically, these very words that John recorded Jesus was speaking, speaking them to a rigid and legalistic Pharisee, trying to help him see salvation more expansively, have become the very symbol of conditional, exclusive Christianity. A narrow view. You know, 
the one we're all familiar with in this part of the country. Accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior or go to hell for all eternity. That's basically the mold that these words have been forced into, unfortunately. Many times when planning a sermon on a text that's so familiar like this one, I spend most of my preparation asking myself, how does one preach a text that has become a cliché? It's a big challenge for sure, but the one thing I know is that it's not my job today to shrink from that opportunity just because the passage may be a little too familiar. The text may be well known, but the loving God of extravagant grace to which it speaks still remains a concept that for too many is hard to conceive much less to internalize and to believe. There is no way around it. Lent is a time for more than just casual introspection. It is our big religious season for repentance and renewed commitment. Just as Jesus once said that anyone who sets their hand to a plow and then looks back in uncertainty is not fit for the kingdom of God, Lent is our moment for decision. Are we who we say we are? Is this really the way I choose to go with my life? I've only got one life. Is this what I'm doing now? Is this how I wish to spend it or invest it? The problem I have long had with most preaching of John 3.16 is that we've often overemphasized the consequences of not believing. You catch that? You know, woe be unto you. At the expense of talking about we're a life of joyful, committed trust, faith, belief, might and can lead us. It's possible that faith may not just preserve and protect us for all eternity. It may just compel us and convict us right now. And for me, Saying yes and believing in God's beloved way as revealed in Jesus of Nazareth is not so much about being rewarded with a place of eternal bliss and luxury where we can live forever in perpetual avoidance of others' misery, but instead to a place of abundant life here and now that takes seriously God's call and claim on us to be agents of love in this life. Our yes to that. You know, Jesus was asked more than once, this isn't the only occasion, what must be done to inherit eternal life? Now, that phrase we don't have time to get into, but it's not necessarily afterlife when you hear eternal life. It's life of the ages, life to the full, abundance. And the thing is, he never gives the same answer to that question. Jesus was actually answering Nicodemus here. You can back up and read the beginning of chapter 3 for extra credit in John's Gospel. I don't necessarily think Jesus was lining out a formula, a one-size-fits-all universal plan of salvation. Keep that in mind, okay? But for Nicodemus, it seems, his salvation, according to John's witness of Jesus' words, will come about when he experiences a sort of radical rebirth, a new way of seeing God at work in the world. 
And by refreshing his own understanding of what faith and trust in God is all about, that's the ticket for him. You must be born again, Jesus tells Nicodemus. Born from God is what he's saying. And when Jesus was asked by a rich young man in a different, different conversation, but the very same question, Jesus responded differently. You know the commandments, he told the rich young man. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't give false testimony, and honor your father and mother. It sounded in that conversation like Jesus is saying the answer is to keep and follow the laws of God, as observant Jews had always attempted to do. And there's no conditional mention by Jesus in that conversation about belief in him as Messiah. In fact, it's almost the opposite, because when the man addresses Jesus by the title, Good Teacher, it is almost as if Jesus scolds him for it. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now, to complicate matters, when the young man says, well, he's kept the commandments since he was a little boy, Jesus does not congratulate him and welcome into his life of the ages. He doesn't say, well done, good and faithful servant. No, it's almost as if Jesus in that conversation moves the goalposts or the goal line, making it tougher on him. Well, you still lack one thing, Jesus told that rich young man, providing yet another more complicated answer to this man's question about attaining eternal life, life abundant. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in the realm of God. And then, come follow me. That's what Jesus said. I think I prefer Jesus' first answer better, or maybe the one he offered Nicodemus. I don't know. It's all starting to sound pretty confusing and awfully demanding to me, but maybe... Maybe there's another way to look at it altogether. Maybe as much as we might like it to be, there is no single answer to that big question. No universal answer for one size fits all, as Jesus himself demonstrated, in fact. Hmm. Were Jesus here to speak to us face to face to answer that question? The appropriate response from Jesus might just be tailor-made for you or for me, based on how each of us needs to grow or needs to learn what we need to let go of or to take on or to trust that which is true instead of clinging to our insecurities or maybe the lies we've been told about ourselves or God or others. Hmm. God's word to us? may not be some single uniform blanket spread evenly over the whole world with all the corners tucked in so tightly that no one could possibly escape its cover. But maybe instead it's a deeply warm, personal, appropriate word for you, for me, for Nicodemus, for the rich young ruler, for each of us, depending on what each of us needs in order to have us be the best version of ourselves, and then to come together as the community of God, the beloved community, to do God's work in the world. As Jesus says in this passage from John's Gospel, we don't 
stand in future condemnation by a mean, vindictive God, we can become condemned already right now by way of our own individual choosing, by way of our own refusal to live life set free by God's unconditional love and and stay bound to the heavy yoke instead of insecurity, pain, greed, lies, or power. It's our narrow mindset, our selfishness, our aimlessness. You fill in the blank with what tends to hinder you the most from seeing that God loves first and unconditionally. It's that stuff that condemns us already. Stuff we do or don't do. Not God. We shun the love that constantly lets, is constantly let loose in the world, and we prefer cheap imitations. And sometimes if we become accustomed to a different vision, we believe in a vision of ourselves or of God or of what faithfulness looks like that is not rooted in divine love at all. We do it to ourselves, and most of us understandably we find it easier to pin that blame on God or on our, or on others. Something that should be so cut and dried, the unconditional, limitless, boundary-free love of God that is relentlessly in pursuit of us every day of our lives becomes jilted or forgotten or twisted. And not because of God, but because of us. I wonder, what does unbelief look like exactly? Maybe it looks a little different on each one of us, and each one of us wears our own measure of disbelief in our own way. And so the work of salvation is to get honest with ourselves and with God about what that is for us. God, I do believe, but help my unbelief. As Pastor Rob Bell has said, we all follow something. What do you follow? Who do you follow? Do you even know the answer to those questions? Don't get tripped up on the word salvation with visions of altar calls and and, uh, repeating sinners' prayers or some magical formula for getting, quote, saved Salvation is living fully and freely and with high regard for self and neighbor. And when we do those things, love neighbor and self well enough, it shows we have a high regard for God as well. Salvation is not an event. It's not a transaction, but a journey. And while our salvation is never handed out based on what we do or how we act or how much we give or even how passionately or rightly we believe, What does matter, I think, is this. Opportunities to grow on this path of salvation are all because of God. Wait, aren't we the ones making the choices and living with those choices we make? Absolutely. But friends, step back. Look at it from a wider lens. The very breath we breathe is a gift. The mind we use to weigh out our choices, a gift. The time we have, a gift. The love we find, all a gift. All of the goodness we can ever find in this universe or in any other, all a gift. 
gifts from God, the God who loves first, not only us, but all of creation. God loves first. Today is the fourth Sunday of Lent, which means we're now more than halfway through our 40-day Lenten journey toward Easter. Now, for centuries, this Sunday has been called Rose Sunday. Yeah, like the flower, signifying an old tradition where the Pope would send out roses to bishops, priests, and churches throughout Rome and beyond in order to encourage the faithful and provide a moment of brief levity, if you will, in an otherwise somber stretch of days. In some traditions, clergy, instead of wearing the deep purple Lenten vestments to which we've become so accustomed when we're in our sanctuaries, today would be dressed in lighter rose-colored ones, and perhaps, like medieval popes, would be handing out roses or rose petals of their own. It's an ancient practice meant to remind us that despite the seriousness of faith, faith in God need not be a frightening, scary enterprise. The cause of faith is never served well by those who would try to scare you into God's arms. I hope We'll never succumb to that kind of arm-twisting religion again in any of our journeys. The God who loves first is amazing grace, and faith in that God is liberating and beautiful, albeit at times thorny, kind of like a rose. But our journey of faith is above all beautiful like a rose because God loves first. Perhaps then it's through beautiful rose-colored glasses, as St. Paul might advise us, that we should be reading this text for today and every day. For God so loved the world that God gave. The one who loves first loves to give gifts to us. Over and over again and again, God's love surprises us as God always loves first. And that is a very good thing indeed, especially when we live our lives in light of that truth. Thanks be to God. Amen.